well, what if I don't succeed? And if you don't succeed, what? Well, then I won't get promoted. And if you don't get promoted, what? Well, then I won't be as, um, as successful as my friends. And if you're not as successful as your friends, what? Well, then they might not include me anymore. And if they don't include you anymore, what? Well, then I'm a loser. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life. And a blessing. Achieve your dream. And then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. So I am here with Susie McElveen. Yay, Susie. Susie is a psychotherapist who focuses on trauma, and and she's worked with veterans and people living with HIV and AIDS. And um, I really was excited to bring Susie in because Susie knows so much about people living with trauma and how resilient they can become even in the face of the most horrific experiences that they have. So, um, Susie, welcome. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. So when we talked about this ahead of time and we, we, we discussed, you know, what we could bring up and what we could educate people around, specifically around trauma, what are some keys for folks around how do you become more resilient even in the face of some really awful trauma? Well, I think that's that's a, that's a really um, key point is the is resilience, Sarah. Um, resilience is something that you're either you either have or you don't. Um, I think you can learn to be more resilient, but the people that make the most success from bouncing back from from traumatic events are people that can sit back and look at the bigger picture. Do you think people are born with it? Like it's. In, in my work over the last 12 years, I think there are people that are more prone to be able to cultivate it okay. than, than people than not being able to be resilient. So when you first started working with veterans and you worked at the VA hospital mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. here in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. um, with, with folks that have a trauma like that, what, what do you teach them? How do you help them become resilient? Because that's the teachable thing, right? This is the teachable thing, exactly right. So you, what what you try to do is, you know, acknowledge that this horrific thing happened in their lives. Okay. But oftentimes, people make sense of trauma in in very different, dis- fragmented, um, dysfunctional ways. And what I mean by that is, they maybe believe that it happened because of something they've done, or that it's their fault, or they maybe. Um, it, there's some of their beliefs are reinforced. For example, yeah, give me an, an, an example. example of that would be you might have believed that authority can't be trusted and then something happens, an authority maybe uh, commanded you to do something in the case of the military or a parent maybe told you to do something and then something bad resulted from that. You maybe then your beliefs are reinforced. See, I told you, you know, the police can't be trusted or okay. adults can't be trusted. So it sort of reinforces a, a, a notion that's already been kind of cultivated. Okay. So the first one is acknowledge. Um, Acknowledge the trauma and then kind of look at how are they looking at the, the trauma that happened, meaning the, the things I just said. Is it is it self-blame or guilt or shame or is it related to really intense negative 
um, over-accommodated thoughts like no one can be trusted or men can't be trusted or authority can't be trusted. Okay. And then what? once you identify those thoughts of how a person is thinking post-trauma, Yes. My job Wait, is a, why why did you say post trauma? Well, after the trauma when they're in, in when I'm working with them in therapy. Okay, okay. Okay. Then you you try to assist them in perhaps acknowledging that they need to cha- that, that they should challenge that thinking. So when for example, um, it's my fault I was raped. Yeah getting a person to sit back and maybe look at the bigger picture. Because when you say, it's my fault, I was raped, what you're ultimately saying is whoever, the, the person committing the crime is really off the hook because you're taking all the blame. Why Why does the brain think it would be my fault? Well, Do, Why would it, somebody believe that it was their fault? Do you know what I mean? Well, probably coming into it, there was some low self-esteem in the first place. Um, maybe they grew up with a mother telling them, um, if you keep drinking alcohol or you keep going to parties and getting drunk, you're got something bad's going to happen to you. Um, if you wear, you know, seductive clothing, something bad's going to happen to you. It could be for a a plethora of reasons that someone would have negative self-esteem. Okay. So we call those stuck points or or negative core beliefs. And so when an event happens that sort of reinforces those, the guilt and the shame and the blame really take off. And it's really hard to break that cycle. Okay. So as a therapist, you want to really find out if there are those beliefs that someone has that have sort of solidified the mean what the trauma means to them so okay. we can untangle those okay so i want to take this i want to apply this to people who haven't had a significant trauma mm-hmm. because i think they're learnings mm-hmm. for people that haven't too right mm-hmm. so um maybe it's not a trauma but maybe it's an uh negative event event that has happened in somebody's life sure so anytime you are feeling a really strong negative emotion I always tell my patients, this, that's a signal for it, you You need to pause and examine. Okay. Because emotions don't fall out of the sky. They come from what you tell yourself. This is a very basic uh, equation in, in psychology. It's the cognitive model. Okay. And the cognitive model consists of thoughts. We, we have a bazillion thoughts a day. Yes. And those thoughts influence emotions. And those emotions influence our behaviors. Okay. Say that again. The cognitive model. Thoughts influence emotions, which influence behaviors. Okay. And then that's a cycle. Then the behaviors that you engage in, they sort of influence more thoughts. Now, what precedes all of that are events that happen to us in our lives. Okay. Past events, present events, and even maybe worries about the future. Future. Okay. Mm -hmm. So all of that influences how you think, which influences how you feel, which influences how you behave. So... The therapy that I'm trained in is cognitive behavioral therapy, and there are many extensions of cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's all based on the cognitive model. If you change the way you think, you'll change how you feel, and you'll change how you behave. Okay, so how do I change how I think? So the first and foremost, one thing very important that I want to say is we have, as I mentioned, the predecessor is our events. We have very little control over events. We can't control other people. We can't control natural 
disasters, disasters or, or Mother Nature. Right. Um, but we can control how we respond to it. So how do you change how you think? Well, it's important to recognize that how you feel is very real and it isn't um, false. Okay. It's very real. But the thought that precedes it may be incorrect because everything you think isn't a fact. And and does the thought inform the emotion? The thought produces the emotion. It okay. produces the emotion. So if you're feeling really strongly about something, yes. really overpowering, you better make sure that what it is you're telling yourself is a fact. You you owe that to yourself. It's intellectually dishonest to not challenge it. Mm, I like that. Right? Intellectually dishonest, yeah. not Okay. Indeed. So, so Sarah, let's say something happens at work and a, a coworker really irks you, um, and you are just having this nagging feeling all day. You have to ask like, yourself. Yeah, like a pit in my tummy. Yeah. Um, or. Those are the after effects of emotions, too, like the physical effects of emotions. Yeah. It, it, ab- absolutely. You have to step back and say, okay, what's going on here? Can I, can I give you a real-life example that happened to me last weekend? Yeah. Okay, so had a had a awesome weekend with my aunts who are older in age and my cousins and my both my parents are deceased and so these aunts are very very close to me and they remind me very much of my mom. Yeah. And I had been looking forward to this as you know because mm-hmm. I told you I was excited about it for weeks, okay? Get into the weekend. It is so much fun. I have a blast. Sunday I leave feeling awful. Like just it almost felt like an emotional hangover, mm-hmm. just super terrible, really sad. Mm-hmm. And the whole drive home, because I had a three and a half hour drive home, I'm thinking to myself, I don't want to be sad about the weekend because it was great. I want to come home feeling heavy and irritable and impatient with others. Mm-hmm. I want to be happy for what I experienced. Mm-hmm. I No, I, I couldn't push through. I mean, I, I, I didn't really know what to do. So that's a natural emotion of feeling sad. And and you you explained it very well. I I was there with my aunts. They, they they are very close to them. They're getting older. They represent my parents on some level, and it was a wonderful weekend. And and it it it, it ended. So you know we are all part of the human experience, and this is a natural emotion of feeling sad based on the experience you had. However. It sounded to me like a little bit you were able to kind of be circumspect and say it was good. I don't want to. I don't want to go home feeling bad. Yes, I could, but it was still a weight, so, and I wanted to move through it faster. I didn't really want to sit in it. I, I I understand that. That's that's the problem sometimes. Being able to sit in that negative emotion that's uncomfortable. Right. And oftentimes people can't do it. Emotions are temporal. They're like waves that wash over you. Say they, that again. Temporal. So they wash over you. They don't last forever. So that intensity that you were feeling when you were driving home, are you still feeling that way now, today? That intense? No, no, no. So that's the thing. They, the emotions sort of build, they peak out, and then they start to come down. Like a wave. Like the wave that washes over you. It engulfs you, and then it goes back out to sea. And... The thing is, is that along with that natural emotion of sadness, you're uncomfortable as well. Yeah. Oh, totally. On discomfort. Discomfort does not mean danger. And it also brought back 
previous experiences of leaving there and feeling sad that a vacation was over or there were more things to it. But yes. Yeah, right. And I think you had a previous guest on that talked about the the um, kind of our, the brain, the evolution of the brain and how we are hardwired to be really concerned about safety. Yes, Sarah Heisdu. Yes, Sarah Heisdu. And so our... our, our um, I'm searching for a word. I can't find it. Oh, Sorry. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Our pre- not prehistoric, but our um, yeah. She does call. I think she calls it reptile brain or well, it's, prehistoric. Yeah, it's it's uh, our brains were very um, primitive to be concerned about safety and safety from survival and and you know sustenance. eating, as well as procreating. So there's these three very main functions of the brain, of our primitive brains. Now, our brains have evolved over over thousands of years to where we are today, and they're much more sophisticated. But we still default to that negative part of our brain. And as you as you and talked with Sarah Husdu about it, you can have as I just recall that I heard her say you can have a negative a, a very positive performance evaluation and one negative feedback thing, and you focus on that. Yes. So let's leap forward to what we're talking about here. The primitive brain, when you're uncomfortable, discomfort that triggers in the amygdala danger. Discomfort is equals danger. Okay. And so so many people people that have problems with addiction. Yes. Self-medicating drugs and alcohol or um, gambling, eating disorders. It's that discomfort that they cannot sit through and sit in until it passes. And they have to do something else to fill that so they can push that discomfort away. Okay. So I'm going to get a little deeper on that one because I think that a lot of people, I think the majority of the population in the United States cannot sit with discomfort. And I think it's grabbing a grabbing their phone to distract them. Mm-hmm. It's eating, mm-hmm. it's drugs, it's alcohol, it's sex, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. is a way to avoid the discomfort. Mm-hmm. So how can we better train ourselves to sit? And how do we teach children to mm-hmm. sit with discomfort? It's a big problem. I work with patients, and, and, and I myself will be very open and say, I have problems sitting through discomfort sometimes because we just want to know. I know. I do just want to know. Right. Or I just want it to be the way I want it to be. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Darn it. Yeah. But I think one of the things that we work on, that I also work on in therapy with patients, are distress tolerance and, emo- distress tolerance and emotion regulation skills. Okay. So, so what... What you really have to work on is understanding that we have states of mind. So we have an emotional state of mind, which is, you know, where we're very emotional, where we're very reactionary, impulsive, drama queens. This is our emotion state of mind. Then we have our rational, responsible state of mind. This is where our executive functioning takes place. Okay. Where we balance our checkbook, where we say, I got to run errands today. Um, what am I going to wear? I, I need to wash my hair. You know, I got to make a cake this afternoon. Whatever we need to do. Those are the executive functioning, rational side of our brains. Okay. So if you're e- in either one of those states of mind, it isn't where we're our best. Because if you're a train wreck all the time in the emotion mind, you're going to have a lot of problems with relationships and and 
do it being the best you can be because you're always going to be a mess. If you're always in that rational, reasonable state of mind, you're going to be like an automaton, very robotic, very systematic, right. going to be cold, and you're not going to, your relationships are going to suffer. So we need to be where those two states of mind overlap. What's that? It's called the wise mind. I and, love that. And the, this is this is from, you know, sort of Eastern philosophy, and it's the, a very core principle of dialectical behavioral therapy that M- Dr. Marsha Linehan created. Okay. But to help people that have trouble with emotional regulation. And in this wise mind, this is where you you learn to be very in tune with yourself, to, to notice when you are feeling very emotional So and, and being able to observe the emotion and describe it to yourself. I'm feeling really nervous. I'm feeling really sad. I'm feeling really uncomfortable. Yes. And then being able to participate in that moment just being one with it. It is It is not a place where you want to make a decision on how to respond to something or react to something. It's just noticing it. And the better you get with being able to, te- to, to engage in that, observing, describing, and participating, the more aware you are of self. And so the more empowered you become because you understand yourself. Can, can you just explain the participate thing to me more? Because to me... You said you're not going to action from the participate piece, but that makes me think that it sounds like action. Okay, so let me explain what that looks like. So let's say you are at Kroger's and you ran in to just get two things really quick because you have to be home because you have someone coming over to give you an estimate on something. Okay. And some little old lady has a cart full of groceries and she bumps, she just busts past you and gets in front of you. Yep. Okay, so you find yourself feeling really angry. Yes. What do you do? <sighs> That's yes. what I would do first. But if you're using your wise mind, you oh. know, you say to yourself, oh, I'm, I'm feeling really mind. pissed off right now. Right. So that's and my observe. Observe. Describe is when you describe yourself to it to yourself. Uh, this is I'm pissed. And participate is just okay, just sit with this, acknowledging it. You you're not doing anything. That's the sit with the discomfort, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, you don't want to cut your nose off to spite your face, like and, and jam your card into the back of her right. and hurt her, right. or um, start screaming and hollering, and then the manager comes over and you're spending more time at Kroger's than you wanted to. Right. right? So it's, it's, a, it's a time when you just sit with it and you don't want to react or respond. You want to just participate in that moment with yourself. Because the more you can do that, the more you can see that it will pass. That okay. it will pass. Okay. You also want to do that non-judgmentally. So non-judgmentally means you don't want to sit there and go, GD, this old lady, she's <laughs> driving me crazy. I mean, because you're making judgments then, and that's going to get you into that emotional mind. It's going to get harder to get out of it. Okay, that's the part that I think I've always missed. Because I will, like, observe it, but mm-hmm. then I go into the judgment mm-hmm. pretty quickly. And when you, you have to stay out of the judgment. Stay out of judgment. Both okay. on yourself because you don't want to go, gosh, I can't believe I'm getting so mad about this. I'm trying to be really cool about this. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to just repeat this back so that I can sum it up. So you have an emotional part of the mind and you have the rational part of the mind. But the key is to combine the two and have a wise mind. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you need to, if if an issue comes up in which you're frustrated, angry, discouraged, whatever, sad, whatever, observe it, describe it, and then participate with it. But no judging. So stay out of the judgment mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what can you explain to me? Um, 
with regards to veterans who have PTSD and how what part of this is harder for them than for people that don't have PTSD? So, yes. So the interesting thing about veterans, particularly combat veterans or any veteran, really, because they've all been trained, is they have been trained the complete opposite. They have been trained to never stop and pause and examine what they're thinking and feeling. They are trained to react. Okay. So they are trained to have knee-jerk reactions because if they don't react, they, they may be die. killed. Or their, their, other, their men in their party may be killed, men and women. So they are trained the complete opposite. And in, in a way, it is teaching them to, de- to deprogram them. And it's particularly hard because these people have been taught and, and have been in situations where their knee-jerk reactions have saved them. So they really, what they do is when they have a thought, they skip over the emotion. They don't pay attention to it. And they've learned to shut it down. And they just respond. Okay. So without any thinking or processing. And that works in a situation like you and I would do that if we were sitting here and looking out over 75 and we saw a three-year-old going to run across six lanes of traffic, we wouldn't we wouldn't stop to examine our feelings either. We would jump up and go get the child. Yes. The thing is, is that, and oftentimes this is harder when you work with a veteran who actually did something like that, they say, see, I saved my life or I saved someone's life. Right. You're crazy. But what we really have to f- get them to focus on is, do you really need to be in that high state of alert all the time? No. And what part of the um, your life is really not working for you? Relationships with family members, intimacy with spouses or partners, being able to just relax and enjoy life. That's not happening because they're on this high state of alert all the time Okay. to act and react, act and react. And you, you can't really live like that. And what we know is even in ancient times and a lot of historical documents that we have talk about warriors being sent off to retire in villages and Japanese samurai warriors were after serving so many years in as as a warrior they would go retire in quiet villages this is why we had such syndromes as before we really knew what PTSD was battle fatigue um, wounded soul disorder whatever so soldier's heart is what it was called soldier's heart so when they went off when the samurais went off to a quiet village, was that helpful? Because it was, I mean, what did you mean? I think the premise of that is is that you can't live in that state of being a, a warrior and on guard and on alert all the time. The body the cannot, body cannot do it. Because there is a very physical, biological component to living like that with your stress hormones constantly releasing in the brain. Okay. Okay. And so what happens? So what happens is then the amygdala is constantly sending signals that you need to react and respond. And it... it it's telling the frontal cortex, the frontal cortex in a sense goes offline. Yeah. It isn't able to differentiate when there's a loud bang to when there's actual gunfire, a firework compared to gunfire, or um, hearing sirens can just set you off. And your frontal cortex isn't able to say, oh, that's just an ambulance instead of this is an air raid. So your frontal cortex, is that the rational mind? Is that the... 
executive that, functioning? That's the part of your brain that really kind of com- comes back and says and computes everything. It's like a, a, a information processor. Okay. The amygdala is the thing that gets ignited or gets um, sort of triggered when something, when a loud noise happens. It tell, You know how you ever get a startle response when a, yeah. there's a loud noise behind you? Yeah. The amygdala says immediately, danger. And the frontal cortex says, oh, that was just a door slamming. So for me, um, when I worked um, in, a, in a prison system, but it was for juveniles, I was assaulted by an 18-year-old. And um, I had a, a response, like, if I, I don't even know, I, I can't even actually define when it would happen. But a couple days after that, if I saw a man walking up to me and I, it, it startled me, I would go into a little bit of panic, you know, mm-hmm. like shock mm-hmm. a little bit. Right. Um, and I remember the psychologist that I reported to, he was awesome. He was like, here's the deal. You can stay home tomorrow, but you can't stay home the next day. Because any days that you keep staying home more and more, you're going to get more and more fearful. So I want you to come. So I didn't stay home even the next day. I came right back to work, addressed the fear. But what happened there? Why Why did I have that response? Well, that's a normal response after trauma happens. It's a very normal response. And the psychologist that you reported to was very right. You need to come in and you need to face the fear because otherwise what you're going to be doing is training your brain that you cannot you cannot interact there because of the uh, of the perceived threat of danger and we have to face it it's just like when a little kid goes out in the ocean with his mom and a wave washes over him and knocks him over and fills his mouth full of water and if they go sit on the blanket for a minute and then if she doesn't take him back in pretty quickly yes. he's going to learn to be very afraid okay. that he can't tolerate it, that he can't handle it so what happens is most of the people that that experience trauma they recover in, in about three months' time at, at, at most in terms of their symptoms of re-experiencing, hypervigilance, avoidance. But about 20 to 30 percent go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And that is where the brain is sort of hijacked and the frontal cortex goes is not able to tell you it's okay. It's just a man coming up behind you yes. or it's just a loud noise. The frontal cortex is saying danger, danger, danger. And so they go straight to fight or flight. Fight or flight mode, which is that old primitive brain we talked about that's the fight or flight mode. Or there's also freeze, fight, flight, or freeze. So some people, you don't have any control over this fear response. You either fight back, you take off and get out of, get out of dodge, or you freeze in your tracks. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I we don't have that. control over that. And we might, if people, some people experience multiple traumas and they have multiple different responses. You just really, it, you, you never know how it, it, you're going to respond to that. So I, I think this is so interesting because when we think about fear of failure, which a lot of people have, mm-hmm. regardless of what the failure is, mm-hmm. what advice would you give them from a brain perspective and from a cognitive behavioral therapy pers- perspective? Explore the fear. What's the fear related to? So, let, so w- with a patient, I would do what we call a drill down. Okay. So you feel fear because... Okay. What's the thought? Because remember the cognitive model. Yes. Thoughts produce emotions, which produce behaviors. So feel fear what? Well, what if I don't succeed? And if you don't succeed, what? Well, then I won't get promoted. And if you don't get promoted, what? Well, then I won't be as 
um, as successful as my friends. And if you're not as successful as your friends, what? Well, then they might not include me anymore. And if they don't include you anymore, what? Well, then I'm a loser. I'm a loser what? So you keep going down and down and down until you get to the bottom. And probably the, the fear of I'm a loser relates to feeling less than or feeling like they don't measure up. Right. And so you just keep going and keep going and keep going until you hit rock bottom. And usually they will, when I, when I do that, they, they get there and there's like this aha moment. Ah. And why do you have to help the brain get to that? Because we have these negative core beliefs or what we like to call them in cognitive um, therapy world, stuck points. Yeah. And they are, think of them like a tree trunk. And then there are all these branches and root systems that grow off of them. And they, they are, they're just really insidious in us. And we have to get to the core so we can challenge that core. So in this example I just gave you, I am a loser, the first thing I would do is then ask, ask, ask the patient, well, what's the evidence for that? Because if you're telling yourself you're a loser and you're feeling very strongly about it, let's prove it. So what are so the facts? So that's the next step. That's the so next after step. they get to that core stuck point, uh-huh. then you ask, what are the facts for that? Let's challenge it. Yeah. Let's challenge it. Okay. So oftentimes people will say, I'm a loser because I failed at this exam or I didn't get that promotion or my friends don't want to hang out with me. And then there's evidence, always evidence. Usually, sometimes it's harder for them to get to it. But that's my job is what's the evidence against? Well, I got promoted two times before that. Um, well, I didn't really want to hang out with those friends anymore because they were kind of not interested in the things I'm interested in. Well, I don't really like doing this. You know, you just have to work it with what we call Socratic questions. These are open-ended questions that get the other person to really start to think in a problem-solving way. Okay. So after you, okay, so you um, explore the the fear or the thoughts, you challenge it, then what? Well, we never challenge feelings, though. We never challenge the feeling. You just the challenge feeling is the real. thoughts? It's the thoughts, exactly. Okay. So once they're able to challenge That's that. That's interesting. You never challenge the feelings. No, because feelings are real. Well, very real. But people but can say th- thoughts are real, too. Well, thoughts are real, but that doesn't mean they're true. The thought is oh. what produces the emotion, which, which which influences the behavior. And just because you think something doesn't make it a fact. I could say that you're wearing a purple shirt right now. I could When think I really it. have a white shirt on. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, so never challenge the feelings. Okay. And, you know, you and I both know when someone says, you shouldn't feel that way. Ooh, never say that. Right. You should feel however you are feeling, but maybe your thought needs to be tweaked. Mm-hmm. So once you get to that point, it's it's a very pivotal point in the therapy or in working with someone to help them with whatever their issues, it is, whatever yeah. their issues, right? Because what it is is you have identified some of these core negative beliefs that they believe about themselves or other people or the world, and you it's shaky ground. Because okay. you've held on to that for so long, that's sort of been your way you see the world, the lens with which your you view. Your belief system. Exactly. And so it's it's a powerful moment, and it's very pivotal. And then you move to the next stage, which is, how am I going to reframe this? Okay. So for for folks that don't have a significant trauma or trauma, mm-hmm. this this can apply, too. Absolutely, because this is this is tackling the roadblock. Yeah, this is I getting love out that of your own stuck way. Point. I really like that term. Mm-hmm. What's your stuck point? We say what's your stuck point? Yes, 
Yes. What's your stuck point? I like that. Yeah. Okay, sorry. I, I interrupted there. Yeah. Okay, then what? So um, after the... So then you then you work on reframing. Reframing, So instead yes. of saying, I'm a loser, perhaps you could say, I've had... What else could you tell yourself? I, I put it back on them. And what we really sort of help them get to is, I've had some successes, you know, I, 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 and I'm going to work to, to get more, or I'm a good person, or whatever it is. Right. But it's, you know, sometimes you can only get people to go, um, let's say someone says, I'm never safe. Yeah. Aww. You can only get them to, at first, to say, sometimes I'm sometimes safe. Sometimes I'm safe. Or I'm safe at blah, 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 blah. Or I'm safe with right. a certain person. Exactly. But it... To say I am never safe, the door is closed, the windows are closed, there is no opening, there's no hope there, and it's really hard to climb out of that hole. So getting them through facts, through evidence that there are times they have been safe, to be able to slowly open that door opens up a world of possibilities. So how do you then reinforce it? Let's say they get, we get to a place, and you and I have both been there, where we get unstuck Mm -hmm. from a belief, Mm -hmm. from a thought. Then what? How do I reinforce it? Reinforcing it because you now have these skills that you can identify, challenge, and reframe. And reinforcing it is using the skills and also paying attention to the evidence that you have identified that is against either the negative belief or for the positive belief. Okay. I love that. Mm -hmm. All right. I feel like one time you were telling me a story about um, they did like a brain scan of – folks with PTSD and the difference in the brain from those who don't have PTSD? Well, the positron emission topography um, images can show that what happens biologically, what happens in the brain, and that, like I mentioned, that the amygdala fires off messages in the frontal cortex, can't process them and just keep saying danger, danger, danger. So, and the hippocampal region of the brain, that's the the memory, um, can become a lot smaller. Let's right now sum it up with, I'm going to think of a question, or do you have anything that you're like, I want to finish it out with this? Well, I think we we started off talking about resilience, and I just wanted to come back to that. So the resilience factor here. So some people have an easier time being able to focus on when they when they learn these skills to being able to embrace the fact that the, the power lies within themselves that the control and the power lies within themselves that it's how you look at things really the glass half empty or the glass half full and you have a choice and some people can really embrace that choice that they no longer have to go with just say to themselves this feeling of fear is just going to overcome me and it's just too much for me to bear some people can really gravitate to that i have a choice that i feel this fear and it's okay because of feelings they serve a purpose they do warn us to danger but they also when they are extreme have to be looked at yes now Again, I have to make this very clear. I'm not saying when you're walking down a dark alley at three in the morning and you feel fear because someone's walking behind you that you should pause and say, right. oh, what's happening with my feelings? <laughs> no. I mean, let's use common sense here. But if you're feeling really strongly, you need to be able to challenge it. And when you do that, you open up a world of, well, there's this and then there's this and then there's this. And that intellectual curiosity is so empowering. Because it helps you 
make better decisions, feel more empowered, and build your ego strength. I like the idea of building your ego strength. Um, mm-hmm. But I also want to say that your example with the, with the alleyway, I think a lot of this is applicable either at home or at work mm-hmm. when you're in safe environments, but you've just been washed over with emotion, to use your words before, and mm-hmm. the emotion gets in the way of more rational thinking at times. Absolutely. That can does. happen to me a lot. Absolutely where I does. And I'm good at recognizing it. I'm pretty in tune with that. Mm-hmm. I just want to get better at shortening the time. Like I told you with the drive home, I was sad pretty much for three or four hours. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to be sad for three or four hours. I want to like I want to make that one one hour or cut it in half. But you you live through the three the three hours. I mean, I don't think there's a timeline on this. And I think okay. I think what I want to say to that is y- you live through it and you're fine and you also have a, a, a deep appreciation of how much that weekend meant to you. And if it didn't mean something to you, you wouldn't have been that sad. Everything has a yin and a yang. Right. And this means so much to you, and it's so enriching, and you wouldn't trade it for the world. Right. So, And if you weren't sad, it, it would be bizarre. Yeah, because I, yeah, right? Because sa- you have to have sadness to have happiness or joy. Right. And the sadness really was, is, is joy-based, Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're missing your parent. I mean, there's multi pronged things here. Well, it it comes from a good place. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So out of the sadness comes joy. I love that. Yeah. Suze, I think we're going to end with that. All right. I think it's perfect. Great. It was so fun. Thank you for being here today. You're welcome. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes Anna Bulky, our producer and the incredible team at Gwyn Sound if you liked this episode please please go to iTunes subscribe rate and write a review 